This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello, and welcome to the That's Not ESG episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. And with Elizabeth Spires. Hello. And we are just going down the list of things that are not ESG <laughs> this week. We are going to start with Tesla, which was literally kicked out of the S&P's ESG index. We're going to move on to Grubhub, which obviously isn't ESG, but had a particularly cursed week with a promotion that went horribly wrong. We are going to talk about TikTok, which is a Chinese company. And are there any ESG Chinese companies? I don't know. But certainly ByteDance doesn't seem to be one of them. And then finally, in Slate Plus, we are going to talk about the most ESG industry of all, which is Tooth Fairy. They tick all the E and S and G boxes. So Tooth Fairy, if you're out there listening to Slate Money, well done. You managed to stay in the index. It's all coming up (laughs) on Slate Money. Okay, so... In preparation for all manner of high-minded think-fluencing next week atop an alp, I've been thinking about ESG, which is always a very popular topic of conversation. And it is in the news because every year the S&P rebalances its S&P 500 ESG fund, which is basically the S&P 500, but with a it's environmental social and governance overlay, which is meant to more or less follow the S&P 500, but just be a bit nicer for everyone concerned. And most people have never even heard of this index, and it doesn't normally make headlines unless and until Tesla is involved. And Tesla was in the S&P ESG fund and now isn't because it's in the bottom quartile of all automakers for ESG. And of course... Elon Musk and the Tesla fanboys are up in arms about this because they reckon that Tesla should automatically be part of the ESG fund because, hey, it's solving the planet by making electric cars and anything else is irrelevant. I'm going to take a wild guess here, Emily, that you don't agree with them. Oh, well, Felix, I'm about to surprise you. Dun, dun, dun. I feel like Elon Musk might have a slight point. Whoa. A slight point. (laughs) From what I have read about how the S&P ranks companies by ESG standards, they don't take into account emissions avoided. Presumably, by producing electric cars, Tesla is avoiding some amount of carbon emissions, but that's not taken into account at all. So therefore, Tesla doesn't make this list, but ExxonMobil does make the list because they look in the ESG rankings, they look at like business plans around climate and promises these companies are making. So one of the things they do is they do try to mirror the S&P 500 as best they can. So they rank you against your peers rather than against all other companies. Mm -hmm. So the reason ExxonMobil is in there is because ExxonMobil does well compared to other oil companies. Tesla is compared to other auto manufacturers. They're Mm -hmm. not comparing Tesla to Exxon. They're not saying Exxon is better than Tesla. They're saying Exxon is better than Chevron. So I do take your point that if you make electric cars, then those cars are going to produce much lower emissions than 
gas burning cars, mm-hmm. and that should count for you. Yeah. But ESG is only one third E. There's right. also the S and the G. The G on Tesla is not super bad. They have a separate chairman. They have a single class share structure. The governance of Tesla is a bit, you know, we all know it's basically Elon and He can do what he wants. So the governance is not great, but it's not terrible. The S is terrible. The S is super terrible. It's full of accusations of sexism and racism and union busting and you name it. And on the S alone, like if Exxon is the kind of company that you might want to exclude just because of E, then Tesla is exactly the kind of company that you might want to exclude just because of S. Elizabeth? I mean, I agree with Felix. I think you could take Elon out of the equation just as a standalone variable, and they might be back in the index. But I also take Emily's point, which is that if the index was a standalone E index, it wouldn't necessarily make sense to kick Tesla out of it. But the predictable reaction from Elon is his perpetual sense of persecution. He's alleging that this is the powers that be persecuting Tesla for inexplicable reasons. And they've been pretty clear about why Tesla's being kicked out. They couldn't really give Elon or any of the rest of the company clearer signals about what they need to do to repair it. So I just, I think it's perfectly reasonable decision, but I also am unsurprised that Elon and the fanboys are reacting the way that they are. I I think one of the things is that when people see ESG, they think E, and the two are just conflated. But Facebook, aka Meta, has not been in this index for a while, and it's still not in this index. And Facebook's carbon emissions are relatively small, right? The reason Facebook is not in the index is because of S and G, mm-hmm. and specifically, actually, because of G, I think. It's just completely controlled by one man, which is just crazy. So I take heart from this because it does show that this is properly an ESG index and not just an E index. And so that makes me happy because I think you do need to balance these things that although it on one level you can just say, well, climate change is the big existential risk for the planet and it's the only thing we should care about. I, I feel like it's worth being a little bit more holistic. Absolutely. I mean, and we'll talk about TikTok later in the show, but the S is really important. The least you can do as a company is treat your employees, your stakeholders well, right? The social piece is really important. Like, And and it's pretty clear that Tesla employees are badly treated. I mean, yeah. Judging, yeah, by the complaints from the state of California (laughs) and various lawsuits over the years, I would say it's not looking good. It's looking very bad. And Elon Musk is famously a terrible person to work for. He fires people on a whim. He's very mercurial. We just saw this week there was a big Business Insider piece about how he apparently signed a big settlement with one of his flight attendants on a SpaceX private jet for sexual harassment. So that should be disqualifying. Yeah. But on another level, ESG just seems like so much artifice like it's a performance it doesn't one of the things they rank e on according to one of the things i read was having a stated net zero goal and disclosing climate risks that gets you like a high e ranking i mean so that's not actually good for the environment it's nice to have goals but so what isn't that just greenwashing but the index really is tied somewhat to what people expect these variables to do for the stock price so, for instance, and in, in with the S component of it, if Elon is behaving 
erratically, which he, he does as a matter of course, but maybe more so recently, shouldn't that be a factor? Yeah, and as for all of these things being hard to measure, hard to compare, like this is the deep fundamental issue with all ESG investing, right? How do you compare one company to another on these metrics? You can't just conflate it all down to a single number, right? It, there's no good way of doing it. There's no good way of comparing these apples and those oranges. And a lot of accountancy companies and a lot of big buy-side investors putting a huge amount of effort into really trying to create comparable metrics that you can judge companies against each other on. We are a long way down from the kind of hand-wavy, oh, I think this company is better than that company. But we are still a long way from something really rigorous and quantifiable. Although we're getting there, and I think, honestly, we're getting there faster than I had expected us to. And while it is always possible to look at certain individual factors that go into these rankings and these decisions and say, well, that individual factor is problematic because it can be gamed or it's not great. Ultimately, I think there is a certain amount of good faith and honest attempts to try and do the best they can, and it is improving. So I'm, I'm a little bit optimistic about that. Who, who, this is, <laughs> who cares about ESG investing? Like, who is this all for? Really good question. And the answer is mostly large European pension funds. Ah. Um, there are literally trillions and trillions of dollars of state-controlled and privately-controlled European pension funds and insurance companies who really care about this a lot. And they are mostly driving it. It's mostly not American investors at all. It's mostly European investors. And, and specifically, it's mostly institutional investors rather than retail. This is not one of those things where you're like, your vegetarian brother is like, I want to be cool with my investment, so I'm putting my... <laughs> 401k into ESG. No, this is trillion dollar investment funds who are saying we want to actually do our bit to help save the planet. And does it work? You know, I mean, I think the jury's out on that. But if you look at the number of companies who are putting a lot of money into trying to create net zero plans and all the rest of it, you have created that at least. We don't know yet whether those plans are successful. It's very hard to know what the counterfactuals are in terms of what would those companies be doing if it wasn't for the ESG push from large investors. Mm. But it stands to reason that they are doing more than, I mean, you can see already that they're doing more than they were and that they're doing more than they would be doing if it wasn't for this pressure. So how big of a difference it makes is almost impossible to quantify, but that it's making a difference is almost undeniable. Because hmm. if ESG, how can ExxonMobil be ESG? It just doesn't make sense. So, right. So there are lots and lots of different ways. It's not, there's not just one I know it's binary not just thing. E, right? but it's not, no, but it's not even a binary thing. It's not like you are ESG or you're not, right? Yeah. And then if it's ESG, then you invest in the ESG companies. And if it's not an ESG company, you don't invest. It's much different than that. And the BlackRock is, for instance, a passive investor, but it still like pushes for this kind of thing. The idea is that simply divesting from Exxon is not going to help you. Exxon is still going to be Exxon. It's still going to be very profitable. It's still going to be pumping out carbon into the air. And if a bunch of European investors just don't have any exposure to Exxon stock, like that doesn't help the planet at all in terms of Exxon's emissions, right? What you want is for Exxon to reduce its emissions and to move towards net zero. And, and so what you want to do is you want your investors to push the board to go in that direction. And you want to compare Exxon to other oil producers and say, are you doing better than your peers? That's the argument. 
I'm, I'm a big believer that the divestment is completely useless and doesn't help anyone. I think it depends on who's doing the divestment, but I, I think the ESG funds are really designed to give a structural incentive to companies like Exxon to not just do nothing. And I think the importance of institutional investors and in actually having influence on that is enormous. So I understand why it's enough of an incentive that they have to take it into consideration in a way that they wouldn't otherwise. Just so uncomfortable. <laughs> like, could a, it could is a tobacco weird. company it's, it's... get a high ESG rating? No. So I think there are a, a couple of sectors who are just completely off limits in most but all ESG investing. Tobacco is one and arms manufacturer is another. But there was a really interesting moment there towards the beginning of the Ukraine war where the arms manufacturers were like, look, you need us. You should have us in your ESG <laughs> rankings because we are helping the world be a better place because you need the arms manufacturers to help the Ukrainian resistance. That was kind of awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Let's stay on this S part of ESG for a minute and talk about Grubhub, who had a great idea this week, which was, I know, why don't we spend millions of dollars on buying everyone in New York City lunch for the day? That's going to cause a huge amount of goodwill. We're going to have this massive city and everyone in New York City is going to love us because we gave them a free lunch. Elizabeth, did you take them up on that offer? I did not. But I remember whenever I saw it thinking, how are they going to do that? And, and this is even in the absence of the obvious mistake they made, which is a you know reseller of widgets, not telling the widget vendors that they were going to have enormous explosive demand ahead of time. So I, I'm unsurprised at the chaos. I am surprised that this problem seemingly did not occur to them, which if they were an ESG company would be, I guess, yeah. a failure of the G aspect of it. <laughs> But it was clearly mostly an, a failure of the S, which was just the social chaos that resulted from this. You had overwhelmed restaurants. You had people placing orders and them just getting canceled. You had people placing orders and waiting hours and hours for their lunch to turn up. You had long lines. You had, I think, someone tried to phone up Grubhub and was told they were 3,922nd in line or something mm -hmm. like that. According to Grubhub themselves, they were getting 6,000 orders a minute, which if you work it out over that three-hour window, works out to about a million orders, which That's is wild. just crazy, right? And so, and the fact that they didn't think this through, and all of this chaos was entirely predictable, and that what they were doing was they were taking a bunch of restaurants, mostly who are understaffed and stretched already for pandemic reasons, and saying, we're just going to sort of 10x your demand without warning you. Someone somewhere was just not thinking. Also, is this a situation where they were, I mean, they didn't front load any of the costs either. So I guess the restaurants just had to front everything and then wait to get paid. Is that our understanding of? Yeah, I mean, exactly. The idea is, if you put in your $15 Grubhub order to a restaurant, then Grubhub will pay the restaurant $15. But the restaurant had no ability to sort of stock up in advance of the demand to be able to fulfill the huge number of orders coming in. And Grubhub had no ability to say, oh, they have nothing in their system where the restaurant can say, like, we're overwhelmed, no mass. And Grubhub would just keep on sending orders into these restaurants, even when the restaurants were completely 
overwhelmed and had no ability to fulfill the orders. It seems like the peak moment for what is a badly structured business, which these delivery businesses, I think, and we've talked about them a couple of times, they're just, they're not ESG at all. <laughs> they're not good businesses. <laughs> the way they interact with the restaurant seems they don't try and work with them or coordinate with them. They did this promotion, obviously was going to be very taxing on the restaurants, could have benefited them if they had like really planned it out and coordinated, but they did not. It was clearly not for the benefit of the restaurants, right? It was no. it was a marketing campaign to try and get people to sign up for Grubhub. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that if so, getting a million New Yorkers to sign up for Grubhub, that's a customer acquisition cost of $15 per customer, which I'm sure they've managed to do a spreadsheet saying our lifetime value of a Grubhub customer is much more than $15. Therefore, it's cost effective for us to do this. But the humans involved are just not even thought about. And a lot of these companies are based on this idea of we can just use all of that human labor as an externality that we don't need to worry about. Right. And you can't do that in 2022, especially because the cost of labor has gone up a lot. There's fewer laborers to find to abuse in this way. I don't think these business models make sense anymore if they ever did. And remember that Grubhub in particular is first and foremost delivery platform, right? The idea is that you put in your order and then you get your food delivered to you. So it's not just the restaurant needing to make the food and fulfill all of those orders. They then need to find delivery humans mm-hmm. to pick up that food and deliver it to certain to residential addresses. And there's absolutely no way you can find enough delivery humans to deliver a million lunches in the space of three hours. It's just yeah. not going to work. Has anyone uh, created an anti-ESG index? Oh, they exist. Yeah, they totally exist. The sin indexes or the sin indices, the ones which are like, well, all you do good is you go ahead and invest in vegetarians or something, and we are going <laughs> to invest in gun manufacturers and tobacco oh, and everything what? evil. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Those indexes... I mean, in general, over the past few years, ESG indexes have outperformed and sin indexes have underperformed. That's largely because the big oil majors have underperformed. But in general, the ESG thesis seems to be working out as an investment thesis. If you're purely mercenary about it and you don't care about the planet at all, there seems to be more and more evidence that ESG is worth in putting your money behind just because it makes you more money. Pay attention, Grubhub. (laughs) But it's hard. If you were Grubhub, what do you do, right? I mean, you can definitely be less evil. You can stop. Like, there was that thing where they started making fake websites for restaurants because if a restaurant puts its order through to Grubhub from its own ordering system, it pays less than if the order comes in via the Grubhub platform. Yes. And so Grubhub created fake websites for restaurants so that people thought they were ordering from the restaurant directly, but in fact they were ordering via Grubhub. That's just plain evil and don't do that, Grubhub, and come on. Yeah, and they're still, they're facing lawsuits in D.C. and Chicago for that and for saying they don't charge delivery fees and hiding them in sales tax number and stuff like that. Yeah. But in general, the idea behind Grubhub is they sell it to restaurants as a kind of, this is free extra money. You might not make as much money as you would on people coming in to eat because they charge huge fees to the restaurants. But it's just additional. It's it's free additional cash, so you don't need, so, so you should all sign up for it anyway. And in fact, if you normalize delivery to this degree and if you make delivery this easy and if you make people think to themselves oh i should just eat in rather than go out to eat 
that's terrible for restaurants. And the whole delivery industry, whether it's Uber Eats or Grubhub or anyone else, is just hurting restaurants, hurting their margins, hurting especially the amount of money they make on selling booze with meals because people don't order booze when they order food. And yeah, it's just making it harder to operate restaurants, which come on. Come on, people. That's not ESG. Elizabeth, as a New Yorker with a kid, do you use Grubhub? Yeah, we use it uh, more than I would I would like to admit. They're especially given my, my child's range of what he will eat. I, I can count all foods on one hand. So he's, uh, <laughs> and several of them come most frequently via delivery. So I, I would say we are high volume consumers of delivery food. When I first moved to New York City, I, I don't know why, but I had a moral stance against delivery. And people would come over and be like, where's yours? Because every New Yorker used to have, before Grubhub, you would have a drawer. And in the drawer would be like a thousand takeout menus. Yep. But I refused yep. to take out. I would only pick up and order in person because I had a moral, I don't remember what the reason was, I'm being honest. It just seemed so lazy and like weird not to just go around the block I'm to get with your you, food. man. That's what I, I always order for... <laughs> Like sometimes we eat in, but when we do, we order from our local restaurants and I go there physically and I pick it up. Yeah. Because like it's quicker that way and the food is hotter that way. And also I don't feel like I'm messing up the streets with a whole bunch of delivery people who are underpaid and overstressed and it's just a bad job and I don't want to encourage people to, you know, do that job. And they're in physical danger. So you think I'm the personal anti-ESG person here? Basically, if you are, no. if, if you are a major European institutional investor, I, I would highly recommend divesting from Elizabeth Spires. Just like get out of that asset class. I mean, they make it so convenient. It's hard not to do it, especially now that you don't have to call and go through that whole awkward ordering over the phone. You just push buttons. They make it really easy, and I don't fault anyone for using these services, right? Except for Elizabeth. Well, yeah, except for <laughs> But when it comes to mistreatment of employees, here's my next segue. Elizabeth, tell me what it's like to work for TikTok. TikTok is definitely in the anti-ESG index, I think. So <laughs> long hours, low pay, all the sort of abuses that, you know, I, I remember from the first dot-com boom that people would venerate. You find people sleeping under the desk for low pay and high upside and treating in, interns like 60-hour-a-week employees. Things that happen at the beginning of a cycle in, in, you know, startup booms. Still horrible. You would think that at this point there would be enough standards around labor that these things wouldn't still be happening, or at least there would be... Based on the fact that there's so much more media scrutiny that you wouldn't get away with stuff like this as easily, but apparently not. I'm not sure about the low pay thing. It's definitely long hours. But the main thing reading these stories, or specifically this one story about TikTok, is that there's just this fundamental disconnect on two different levels between the Americans and the Chinese, right? So TikTok is, a, is owned by ByteDance, which is a Chinese company, which is based in China. And the idea in China of work-life balance and bring a whole self to work and make sure that you are, you know, all of that kind of stuff, like that has not reached China yet, right? So the Chinese don't seem to care at all about that. But also, they not only expect the Americans to be more like the Chinese in terms of their work ethic, they also expect the Americans to be more or less on Chinese hours. So there's a whole bunch of like middle of the night shit going down because that's daytime working hours in China. And everything just revolves around 
the Chinese headquarters, and it just makes life incredibly miserable for the Americans who are not only working the American hours, but also working the Chinese hours. Yeah, I really like this piece. It was in the Wall Street Journal, I think, earlier this month, and I've been wanting to talk about it. And it is this weird thing where there are echoes of the famous Jody Cantor, New York Times, Amazon story where Amazon white-collar workers were, like, crying at their desks and whatnot because they're so overworked. And every day is day one at Amazon, which, oh, my God, no. (laughs) But that is apparently – TikTok has borrowed that slogan or that – whatever mission for their office too. every day is day one and they have all these (laughs) be candid and clear is up on the wall but no one knows what the standards are for performance reviews and there's all these like weird slogans and mottos to foster some kind of company culture but the company culture is confused because it's somewhere between amazon inspired and chinese inspired and i learned from this article that in china Chinese tech workers were working a 996 schedule. Do you know what this is? So it's 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. That's crazy. That is a lot of work. And that was just like Even standard. Amazon workers don't work that. I don't think so. And then they they said, okay, we'll, we'll relax. The Chinese government, I guess, even said, like, that's too much. And so ByteDance said it would do 1075, which is 10 to 7, five days a week, which that does sound kind of like normal for the U.S. Anyway, I, yeah, I just thought the culture of of what Elizabeth was saying, the startup intense culture meets like the Chinese startup tech intense culture, which is even more intense. One woman said she was sat at her desk and she couldn't get up from a meeting. So just had her period through her underpants. There was just some crazy stories in this article. And it just seemed like from another time or something. I can't believe people are putting up with this now. You also see where there's an opportunity for American tech execs to kind of co-opt some of these behaviors when it's convenient. I hate to bring up Elon again, but he was tweeting uh, a couple weeks ago about Chinese workers, and he said something to the effect of, you know, in China, workers will sleep on the floor until 3 a.m., get up and work some more, something like that. And and he was framing it as a work ethic issue (laughs) and suggesting that, you know, people who want to work reasonable, healthy work hours are just being lazy. So there's not enough pushback, I think, from American executives in these companies that you do have to prioritize worker health. Yeah. And and there was some a line in the journal piece that was just like, it's not a work ethic thing. It's a fear thing that Chinese tech workers yes. are worried if they don't work really super hard, according to this article, that they'll lose their job and they'll fall behind in the industry. It's not like there's a different work ethic. There's a different well, fear level. There is also a different work ethic. Is, I think yeah, one of the things we are seeing now with the great resignation and the way that the pendulum is swinging more towards labor and away from capital, and we've been seeing this for the past you know, a year or so. And, and I think we're seeing it very much with Gen Z entering the workforce is genuinely less of a work ethic in a good way, right? In in the sort of, I am not living to work, I am working to live. What is the point of killing myself at work if I don't get any kind of benefit out of it except for some, I don't know, pension plan that I may or may not be able to retire on in 40 years' time? You know, it's, it's like, no, I want to have a decent, fun, fulfilling life now and I can't do that if I'm working all the time. We're seeing that with those PowerPoint presentations that the Goldman Sachs interns put together and stuff. And basically people are saying a lot of the work ethic is about delayed gratification, right? It's about I'll work today in order to have a better life tomorrow or in order to build a better life for my children. And I think, yeah, 
if we're swinging towards a slightly healthier attitude to work, where you're working today because you want a better life today, then there is a limit to how much you should be working. Yeah, although I, I don't like the work ethic framing because if you're working insane hours because you feel like you don't have a choice and you're going to get fired and never get a job again, that's a very different motivation than doing it because you view everything through the delayed gratification lens and, and really don't want to do anything right now that might jeopardize that. And also it's a matter of the extent to which the culture will tolerate exploitation of workers, which has little to do with whether the labor market or how workers feel about work ethic. I agree. I don't think it's about work ethic and kids today don't want to work as hard as like we did. I think we are in a genuinely great moment for workers, like you just said, where they actually have some leverage and they don't have to. No one ever wants to work that hard, but like sometimes you have to. Like there's no well, other the choice. Well, the bosses there's do, fear. right? If you founded and run the company, and this is not just true of Elon, this is true of most founders, then certainly most successful founders, is that they really do come in and want to work that hard. They do have that competitive drive. They do want to beat the competition. They want to outwork the competition. They want to outsmart the competition. You know, And they have that drive. And they have a lot of money to make if they're successful, unlike their workers. And they do absolutely expect their employees to have the same kind of incentives that they do, when, of course, they don't have the same yeah. incentives. They have wildly different incentives. You know, I say this having started businesses myself. It's ridiculous to expect a floor worker at Tesla has exactly the same motivation to be there as Elon does. I think that gets overlooked a lot in the discussion, especially when you see C-level executives complaining that people don't want to work that hard. It's like, well, I'm sure if you, think you were somebody working a factory job and you were compensated the way that Elon is, then yeah, I think that would probably change perceived work ethic a lot. Well, one of the interesting things about the Amazon story and the TikTok story is that these are stories of white-collar workers on six-figure salaries who, you know, we read these things a lot when the subject is meat packers or people working in Amazon warehouses or something like that. But when you read the stories about burnout and complete massive overwork and bad working conditions for these people whose job is to sit in front of computers and be like knowledge workers all day, then, you know, it does feel qualitatively different somewhere, but really it's exactly the same. And it's so stupid too. I mean, <laughs> that's my high level analysis. It's so, so, so stupid. Dumb. <laughs> I mean, it's TikTok. It's like a fun app that you go to to like watch little clips of videos and be goofy. And it seems sad that it should be a creative job that you don't spend 14 hours a day doing. Like there's a, a drop-off in your productivity, I think. With the, you can't just squeeze more juice from the lemon. Or I don't know what this saying is. It's been a long week. But you know what I mean? Like these should be creative, white-collar jobs. Like you're not like screwing a widget into a, a – just I don't know what you screw a widget into. I'm sorry. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> just Another widget. It. Emily is all out of metaphors, uh, people. If, if you have much. any, if you have any good like white collar work <laughs> metaphors to Emily, send them in to slate money at slate.com because we need to replenish. We've used them all up at the Axios retreat. Yeah, like you know, if I sat at my desk for sixteen hours a day, I would not have great ideas by hour thirteen. I'd be like, I don't know, just write something about widgets, and I wouldn't have a metaphor anymore. <laughs> like these workers, there's a limit to how much you can push white collar workers. I think. Well, it's limited to how far you can push blue-collar workers, too. Oh, well, yeah, they'll die. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting that, you know, the hot sectors are often the ones with 
the places where people are reported to be working the most. Amazon's this trillion dollar company by people working really hard. You saw the same kind of reports about Netflix a lot. Back in the day, we'd hear it about McKinsey or before that, you'd hear it about Salomon Brothers. Mm -hmm. You know, it's whatever seems to be like hot and sexy also seems to be the place where people just work insane hours. And wouldn't it be nice if there was a a world-beating industry that didn't burn out its employees? Yeah, it's just when those jobs are in high demand, what people will tolerate on the jobs, I I think, is much more expansive. And it also is performative also. I wrote about a study, must have been like six or seven years ago. They looked at a consulting company and everyone was allegedly working 12-hour days, so much work. But the researcher dug deeper, I think it was Aaron Reed, and found like a lot of the men were saying they were at work, but they were like out skiing or like at home (laughs) with their families. It was just like they performed working long hours, but actually they were not. (laughs) And they could get away with it because people just assumed like if this guy with the suit was leaving at five, he was going out for a client dinner. Whereas like the women, if they left at five, would be assumed to be like going home to be with their children. In a survey research, people are really terrible at reporting their own behavior. They tend to have a sort of fictional version of themselves that they always give the benefit of the doubt and always behave slightly better than they do. So it's possible that some of the men responding to that survey really do think they work that hard Mm -hmm. and they haven't quantified it. Golf is work too, Elizabeth. (laughs) I definitely overestimate how much I work. I think the other day was like, and I work like 12 hours yesterday. My husband was like, you did not. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> are you kidding like looking you looked at your phone I'm like all right that's true <laughs> you're a writer you're a creative like I'm always every like, time you take a shower that's working <laughs> <laughs> true fair enough let's have a numbers round elizabeth do you have a number yeah so i have two numbers oh my god well they're related <laughs> ah okay so one is $132,000 and the other is $10,618. So $132,000 was how much the Inspector General's Office of the Social Security Administration fined a woman who accidentally received payouts from her dead partner's Social Security accounts for $10,618. Apparently, The inspector general is a a Trump appointee who decided that the office is going to be more aggressive about pursuing social security fraud, which is not inherently a bad thing. But normally there's a cap on what you can charge people if they have mistakenly received funds, which, you know, a lot of people don't actually realize that's happening, especially if it's a smaller amount or they're receiving other automatic payments, which is what happened to this woman. But some of the fines are more like $176,000 for offenses that prior to that, there would have been a $2,800 cap. So she got $10,000 extra in Social Security payments, but was fined over $100,000 for that? Yes. Uh, There was another woman who was fined $176,000 after she had already written a check to repay $26,000 that she had received in error. And some of these people had identified the fact that they had received the money in error, contacted the agency, and still got these insane fines. But what about Uh, that Revlon case? They got the extra money and they didn't have to pay it back, remember? What about that? The Citibank finger? Yeah. (laughs) God damn it. They should just they should, unfair. May, maybe these guys should hire, you know, Revlon's lawyers. Yes, they absolutely should. Which would cost more than $176,000. That's sure. also true. My number is 135 million euros. 
which is about $142 million. Euro and the dollar, very much, very close to parity. It's really strong right now. Dollar is very strong. So, anyway, $142 million, that is the amount that a car just sold for. What car, Felix? (laughs) Which I still can't quite get my brain around a $142 million car. And. It's not a Ferrari. All of the most expensive cars are always Ferraris, but this was not a Ferrari. This is a 1955 300 SLR Uhlenhaut Coupe, which is a Mercedes. And there were only two of them made, and they were both owned by Mercedes, and Mercedes decided to sell one of them. And it was this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and they opened it up to bidding among a very select group of bidders that they handpicked and no one even knew this auction was happening but the auction happened and the winning bid was 135 million euros and that is so much bigger than the maximum amount of money ever paid for a car in the history of the world it's just completely obliterated the record we're never going to see it again but it just goes to show you know these kind of collectible alternative assets don't seem to have been hurt too much by the big market swoon in crypto in stocks in bonds and all the rest of it that if you're one of those billionaires who can afford to spend 142 million dollars on a car you are still going to take that opportunity if it comes up because you're never going to have that what do you do again you drive it that's what you you do you don't drive a 142 million dollar car if i spend 142 million dollars on a car like can you imagine not driving it of course you're going to drive it how do you insure a 142 million dollar car i think probably lloyd's I'm going to say Lloyd's or maybe Chubb. I think it would have to be one or the other, right? You can't drive a $142 million car. I, ew, that's just <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> My God. You can sail a $142 million yacht. And what happens if that winds up in the storm? Right. Well, you don't want to get me started on yachts again. I feel like you're less likely to crash a yacht, though. And who knows how even how to drive a 1955 <laughs> Mercedes Coupe. Like, it probably drives very un... It's not like driving a modern... Ford. One cool thing about the collectible cars is that when you buy like a new car, of course, everyone says you drive it off the lot and it immediately loses value. But when you now buy, it doesn't. Oh, right. Because the used cars. <laughs> but that's changing a little bit. But with the collectible car, it gains in value. So, I mean, maybe it's worth $143 million after you drive it. Am I, I'm just making that up. I don't know. I mean, yeah, it depends how much you pay, right? But yeah. we did have an episode of Slate Money Swag with... Hannah Elliott talking about collectible cars. And yeah, they do exist and some of them go up and some of them go down and it's the luck of the draw. Apparently it's the the sort of the slightly more modern cars, the sort of 80s and 90s cars that are super trendy right now and going up in value. Emily, do you have a number? Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. This one comes from another Wall Street Journal story and it is $18.05. That is the average hourly pay for a babysitter on care.com in April. And that's up from $14 in 2020. And apparently there is great demand for babysitters, the teenage kind. Wait, so what does that work out in sort of percentage annual gain? Oh, my God. All right, give me the numbers again. I've got my phone out. (laughs) In 2020, it was $14.72. Okay. And now in April 2022, it's $18.05. Okay. I'm doing the math right now. That's 20%. 3%. 23%. 23% inflation Although, in babysitters. I mean, maybe I should have thought about this more. Like in 2020, no one needed a babysitter per se because everyone was at home with their children. So, But anyway, it's still a lot of money. And some of the people quoted in this story 
teenagers were getting paid as much as $35 an hour to babysit, which is like a lot of money. Yes. It's crazy. Yes. Um, so anyway, I don't know what that says about anything, but childcare workers still making way less than yes. this. More, daycare workers make less than that a lot of yeah. times. And that's why there's also a shortage of daycare workers right now. P.S. There's something should be done to uh, merge these kids, markets together. Have and, your kids outgrown the need yeah, for babysitters? Yeah. How about yours, Elizabeth? You, do you pay your babysitters more or less than $18 an hour? I pay more than that. New York City. Where's New York City? Exactly. But this is a good segue to our Slate Plus segment, which is how much do you pay when your kid loses a tooth? That's coming up (laughs) for all of you fabulous Slate Plus listeners. Otherwise, thanks so much for sticking with us on this glorious summer weekend. Thanks to the whole Slate crew, which is a huge group. There's Madeline Ducharme here in Washington because Emily and I are in Washington. There's Jessamine Molly of Seaplane Armada in Brooklyn. There's... Shana Roth, who does amazing things with the ads. It's all coming together thanks to them. Thanks to all of them. Thanks to you for listening. Keep the emails coming on slatemoney at slate.com. And we'll be back next week with more Slate Money. Okay, I am not a dentist, so I'm going to leave this one up to Elizabeth. How many teeth is your kid going to wind up losing over the next few months or however long it takes to lose teeth? Probably in the next few months, six or seven. He's six. He's about to be seven years old. So, yeah, I think that's the range. But how many, But it's more than that in total, right? Oh, yeah. 12? How many teeth do we have? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think we have 32 teeth or something. I don't know if you have that that's many grown up teeth. teeth. Yeah. I think it's 12. We should Google because I don't know. It happens a lot that my kids lost a lot of teeth over the years, I feel like. Well, you have multiple kids. Multiple kids. And um, they're all done with that. So know. so when you're calculating, Elizabeth, how much money per tooth, do you work out like a grand total? You want to? I'm assuming you're not starting with a grand total and then dividing by the number of teeth and working it out that way. No. Well, in this case, my kid lost his tooth very late in the day and I came home from a work thing at 830 and my, my child is just an epic negotiator. So he told me about the tooth and then said, we got to talk about how much the tooth fairy is going to give me for this. And at that, that hour, my husband and I looked at each other and kind of eyeballed our wallets and neither of us had a lot of cash. So after we went to bed, my analysis consisted entirely of how much we could scrape together from our existing cash pot. Because the only alternative was the Tooth Fairy was going to be doling out leftover Easter candy, which actually seemed like a possibility because I had nothing in my wallet. So the punchline is that the kid got $10. Ooh. And then when I looked up the national average for Tooth Fairy payouts, it's $5.88. Or no, it's four fifty-seven In New York, it's $5.88. Yeah, $10 is... You don't want to set that kind of precedent. Yeah, because like once the first tooth has gone for $10, like then it's hard to pay less than that for the second exactly. tooth, right? Exactly. And there's update. <laughs> I've Googled. There's 20. So oh, Wait, there were 20. Okay, so the result of the Googling is there are 20 teeth. If you pay $10 per tooth, then that's 200 bucks. That's a lot for a six-year-old or even a seven-year-old. Well, it happens over years and there's inflation, so. How, how many years does it take to lose your teeth? It goes from like the time you're like four or five until... Maybe like 10. So wait, Elizabeth, is this not the first tooth that he's lost? 
No, this is the first youth. And do you now reckon that like it's going to be greater than or equal to $10 from here on in? You've now inadvertently set a high floor for this? Oh, I, I totally set the baseline. And, and especially with my kid, if I told him that his lifetime expected payout was 200 bucks, he would immediately start negotiating for 500 So there, there's no <laughs> way <laughs> it goes lower than 10 Wait, does he know? He then obviously doesn't believe in the tooth fairy, Elizabeth. He waffles. He, he was very, uh, before he lost the tooth, he was like, there's no way the tooth fairy exists. And he gave me an argument for why. And then I said, well, put your tooth under your pillow. We'll see. And he was convinced that he would wake up and catch one of us in the act, which he didn't do because he's a heavy sleeper. And so the next morning he said, you know, I was really surprised. I guess the tooth fairy does exist. Hmm. He's a very skeptical kid, but he can be convinced that magic exists somewhere in the world. Yeah, I think you've really set a two- High. I don't think you needed to go as high as 10. Was, it, was just, this just a, a function of not having enough singles laying around? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find myself in the situation of having literally zero cash almost every day now. It's just I, I am almost everything just happens by waving pieces of plastic, whether they're phones or cards or something, in the general direction of something. And the problem with the cashless society is it's very hard to give your kid tooth money with. I have so many thoughts about this, Felix, about the cash situation, because it started in the pandemic. When the pandemic started, I had a certain amount of cash in my wallet, and like I never, ever used it. So for like a year and a half, I had the same cash in my wallet. And then in our home, which is like its own little economy, the the four of us in our home— We're always giving each other money. So it my just kid, circulates within the house. It just circulates. So my daughter will buy something <laughs> on Amazon and like, she'll give me $20 for it. But then then she'll need to go do something. So I'll give her the $20 back. And then my husband will give her the $20 and then another thing on Amazon or maybe some candy, whatever. $20 comes back to me and we're just circulating the money. I was thinking about it so much in the pandemic, which I guess is sad, but like it helped me understand so many things. Like I, I feel the one big taxes. thing coming on for Axios Markets. <laughs> it just makes you understand the like reading like the Stephanie Kelton book and how she's like, if you if there's too much money, you just raise taxes and take the money out of the system. So like if there's too much money in the Peck household, we somehow get the kids to give us the money back. Or I don't know. It just <laughs> Yeah, it's, a lot. it's like There's it's like the famous Paul Krugman column about the babysitting cooperative. I don't know that column. Oh yeah, I gotta know. Google that. The, the the Paul Krugman babysitting cooperative monetary policy explainer is very good. Oh okay, yeah. oh, that's exciting. Yeah, and I don't have any change either. But neither does anyone. There's a, still a coin shortage, I believe. Sorry, this is not about babysitting anymore. <laughs> or I'm sorry, tooth fairy. But yeah, as the one person here without any kids, I'm going to just come out and say that ten dollars per tooth is. A little bit extra. (laughs) 